And as you're grabbing your seat, feel free to grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 3, uh, verse 11. We'll be reading through the end of the chapter today, verse uh, 26. We'll continue our time in Acts. Brandon mentioned um, earlier about strange dreams. I've been having a strange recurring dream lately of uh, accidentally burning down the church. Um, <laughs> That's probably way too deep of a psyche uh, into my psyche than you want. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. Um, the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, if you're visiting with us or checking us out, I hope you come back. Um, <laughs> it would be a great encouragement to me if I had the opportunity to meet you after service. This is a large place. And sometimes it can be difficult to decipher who's been here uh, for, for years and, and who is brand new. And so it would be a, a great deal of help to me if you came up after service uh, and just introduced yourself so I had the opportunity to say, hi, I'm usually hanging up front uh, here after services. I'd love to meet you. Uh, let's look to see what Jesus would teach us today from Acts 3. I'll read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, and I invite you to follow along with me. As I read, it says this. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of uh, that God made, uh, that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, Lord, let's, uh, let, let us approach this with the weight and the gravity that it deserves, Father, recognizing that you speak to us through your word proclaimed. I pray, Father, that you would translate these words over the next few minutes and, and, and make them spiritual, 
translate them so that our hearts and our minds and our soul would be transformed by your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and your kindness to us. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. This past week I was browsing the news on the internet and I was surprised to find that the Summer summer Olympics are this year. For something that only happens four years, once every four years, uh, time seems to be speeding up on me because it felt like just yesterday that I was sitting down watching the Summer Olympics. Uh, My wife and I, Sarah, we enjoy watching the Olympics uh, in the past. I'm sure that we will uh, engage and enjoy the games again this summer. And I can guarantee you that if my wife and my oldest daughter, who's going to be eight in March, have anything to say about it, my TV will be tuned into gymnastics every single day. Um, gymnastics, let's just say, would not be my first choice. But if we have to watch gymnastics, I would prefer to watch the vault. The, the, the vault, this is the one where the gymnasts run very fast down this runway of sorts and then jump onto this vault table that propels them majestically into the air as they perform all kinds of twists and turns and somersaults before they stick the landing. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know a remote thing about gymnastics. Um, I had to Google gymnastic events just to get this far. You can imagine how awkward it is if someone were to walk into my office when I was Googling gymnastic events. Um, but while I know virtually nothing about gymnastics, I would imagine that one of the most important aspects of the vault is actually the springboard that they use to jump onto the vault table because it's the springboard that gives them their leverage to do their fancy tricks. While the flips and the spins and the turns through the sky are the actual performance, the actual main show, it's the effective use of the springboard that gets them to that point. Last week, we visited the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3, and we studied how Peter and John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, And through the authority of Jesus' name, we're able to heal a handicapped man who was lame from birth. And this week, as we just read in verses 11 through 26, we find that Peter uses this miraculous incident to catapult him into an opportunity to share the gospel. Just as a gymnast uses a springboard to launch themselves to the true purpose of their event, Peter uses this miracle as the springboard to his main event, evangelism. It's in this moment that we see how sharing the love of Jesus connects with sharing the message of Jesus. Peter shared the love of Jesus, Peter and John, by healing this lame man, by having compassion on them, but they didn't stop there. They were driven to a point where they had the opportunity to share the message of, of, of God's love, the message of Jesus. If I could revisit J.D. Greer's book that I mentioned last week, Gaining by Losing, he writes that our works don't replace the verbal preaching of the gospel. 
but in them we demonstrate tangibly the love and grace that we proclaim with our mouths. Effective gospel preaching is explaining with our words what we demonstrate with our lives. And we see both of these things in Acts chapter 3. These two things, sharing the love of Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus coincide. They go hand in hand. They are intertwined and you cannot fully honor God without both. Because sharing the message of Jesus without sharing the love of Jesus leaves our words hollow and uncharacteristic of Jesus himself. If the local church is called to represent Jesus, if we as at FAC are called to resemble Jesus, we can't just talk about him. We actually have to act like him also. That's why sharing the message of Jesus without sharing the love of Jesus is faulty. But at the same time, sharing the love of Jesus without sharing the message of Jesus is just as faulty, if not worse. Eventually in our works, we have to put words to it. We have to be able to explain to a lost world why we love them the way that we do. Because while words without works are empty, works without words, as Greer puts it, only makes people more comfortable on their way to hell. Our primary objective as a church is to preach Jesus' gospel. And we need to use the love of Jesus as a leverage to get us to that point. We need to earn the right to speak, if you will. But we must get to the message of Jesus. This is what happened with Peter, is it not? In verse 11, as we begin, we read that this lame man was healed. And then all of the people within the vicinity of this event are just utterly astounded and they swarm Peter and John. They've seen something amazing, something you don't see every day, this lame man from birth being healed, and they want an explanation of how this shocking incident took place. And I love in verse 12 what it says about Peter, how Peter reacts we, Peter, we read that when Peter uh, saw it, meaning when he saw the crowd gathered, when he saw the people swarm around them, he addresses the people. He speaks. If you were to watch old video footage uh, of the Beatles, you would often come across that trope, right, of the crowds swarming them, gathering, and then the Fab Four make haste to get away. They're just running away from the crowds to escape this assembling congregation, but not Peter. No, Peter sees this as as an opportunity. Peter seizes the moment, and you'll notice in verse 12 that it's reactionary. It's reactionary. It's in response to the crowd gathering. Now, there's an important lesson that we can pull from this, because let me remind you of the context. All right, Peter and John were heading into the temple for a scheduled time of prayer, corporate prayer, at 3 o'clock. It's not like they were just at home and strategizing how they can share the message of the gospel. They weren't planning this out on their kitchen table saying, okay, first step, find a lame man. 
Second step, heal him. Third step, when the crowds gather around, then we will have the opportunity to, to share the gospel. It's not like they were saying we're going to heal him and then when all the people come, we can kind of bait and switch them, showing them something awesome and then sharing the gospel. Now, let me be clear. I have no problem uh, with people strategizing how to share the gospel. I have no problem as a church creating formal events for the whole purpose of sharing the gospel. But in this context, the entire chapter of sharing the love of Jesus and then sharing the message of Jesus is in the context of Peter and John's normal day-to-day life. And so, yes, we should develop formal outreaches to seek the lost. But I'm telling you, the best outreach that you will ever conduct in your life is the one that occurs in your informal day-to-day life. This is what it means to be missional. This is what I'm talking about when I say that we should live missional lives. Just this past week, I was meeting with a couple and we were talking about outreach. And the wife explained to me that when she goes to the grocery store, she prays that God would provide her ministry opportunities. That God would potentially provide her an opportunity to talk to somebody about the the gospel. She is aware of her surroundings. She's alert and in tune to what the Holy Spirit might have her do. Now, I assure you that she goes to the grocery store to buy groceries, but she is open to any sort of detour that the Holy Spirit might have in store for her. As Peter walks into the temple for a time of corporate prayer, it's not Peter's original intention to share the gospel, but he is indeed intentional. He is sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. He is simply aware of his surroundings and his opportunities. Last week, I mentioned how sometimes we may miss ministry opportunities. We may miss gospel conversations simply because we're selfish. We're selfish with our time. But perhaps we also miss ministry opportunities, gospel opportunities, not because we're selfish, but because we're just flat out ignorant. Maybe we miss them because we're not looking for them. As you carry out your day, look for opportunities that can lead to a gospel conversation. Let me encourage you with all of your might, day in and day out, to pursue the on-ramp of gospel love and gospel words. Peter shares the love of Jesus by healing the man. And now he takes the opportunity to share the message of Jesus. And you see how this healing is merely used as a springboard into the conversation. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? If you go around healing people who are lame from birth, you're going to draw a crowd looking for an explanation. This is what the crowd was doing. And Peter basically says, what are you looking at us for? You're staring at us as as if this is our power or our piety. Piety here means goodness or good character. Peter's saying, look, this isn't our, we can't take responsibility for this. 
This healing power didn't come from within us, but rather it came from an outside source. And it's not even happened because we're good people, because we're righteous people. No, there's something greater that did this. And so this is important. Once again, another lesson that we can pull out of this is that we have to be careful in modern day ministry not to elevate ministry leaders higher than they ought to be elevated, right? I have heard many people reference particular celebrity pastors, if you will, and say something to the effect of, oh, that person's really holy. That church is so big because of how holy that person is, how good that person is. Or how about this one? Oh, oh that, that person has a lot of faith, and the type of faith that can move mountains, or even perhaps the Spirit moves through that person more than other people right? This is what we do to, to our, our ministry leaders, and it's faulty. Peter would be appalled because he knows that it's not from within, but from an outside source. And what is that outside source? Peter tells us he deflects glory to Jesus. If you go down to verse 16, you find him saying, hey, it's in Jesus' name and faith in Jesus that this man was made strong that, that, that gave him perfect health. Think of how easy it would have been for Peter to say, did, you, did, you, did everybody just see that? Did you see what I just did? Man, that was awesome. I just healed this dude. Yeah, look at me. Put me up on a pedestal. Look how awesome I am. But Peter doesn't do that because he knows it's not from him. It's from Jesus. And so he deflects glory to Jesus and saying, I can't take any credit for this. This is the movement of Jesus. And I am merely his representative. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun in our solar system, we are merely to reflect the glory of the son of God, Jesus Christ. Peter understands this that he does this miracle and speaks on behalf of Jesus. And for the people, Peter says, look, what are you so amazed at this? If you've been paying any attention to the current events in the last few months, you would know exactly how this man was healed. You wouldn't be surprised if you were paying attention. But since you stand there, with your jaws hung open, let me offer you a helpful reminder of how this man was healed. And then Peter goes on to this speech where he methodically shares the gospel. He methodically shares who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in his speech, he's drawing attention to what has come in the past, what has happened in the past, and then what will happen next. Peter looks to the past and then points to the future. He looks to the past in verses 13 through 18, and he starts off with a bit of a contrast. He's teaching a Jewish audience, and he tells them, hey, the God of your forefathers, the God that they all believe in, the one true God that we all believe in as Jewish people, glorified Jesus through Jesus' servant submission to the will of the Father, God the Father glorifies the name of Jesus. God has put Jesus uh, at his right-hand side. He has exalted him above all things. And here is where the contrast sticks out. He tells his audience 
that name Jesus, that person Jesus, that God glorified, you denied him. You denied him. And you delivered him over to the authorities as if he was some kind of a criminal. And then when the authorities found no fault, when they declared him innocent and tried to release him, you guys asked for a murderer in his place. He's referring to Barabbas. He's saying you guys wanted an insurrectionist, a murderer, somebody that we know to be guilty in this place of an innocent man. And then your actions led to his death. You killed him. You are responsible and culpable for his death. His blood is on your hands. The one who is called author of life itself, you took his life. You read down verses 13 through 15, and it just shows that Jesus was a man who was despised and rejected. People hated Jesus, and they still hate him today. You don't have to go very far today to see the same kind of rejection of Jesus. You begin talking about him in public and it doesn't take very long for people to get antsy or defensive or potentially hostile. Even in the midst of our own hearts, we catch ourselves in rebellion to Jesus. You have to understand that if you are a believer in this room, there was a day that you sat in the seat of Peter's audience that you rejected and denied him just like them. In our sin nature, we still reject Jesus because we prefer our sin to his righteousness. We enjoy our darkness to his light. You see, you and I, we're not much different than those men and women that Peter was talking to, these men that sent Jesus to the cross. How does that hymn go? Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You and I are very similar to those men that Peter is addressing. Peter continues, and in verse 17, he does understand that these people rejected Jesus in ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing. So certainly that should make things a little bit better, right? This is consistent with what Jesus said when he hung from the cross and he's praying to God saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're killing the author of life. They don't know that they're denying the Messiah, the Christ that they've been waiting for their entire life, the entire history of Israel. Now, Peter explains, yes, you acted in ignorance, but he devotes the entire back third of the passage to telling them this has been right in front of you your entire life. This is what Moses said that there would be another prophet, a greater prophet, a greater Moses that was going to come and save the world. And if you don't listen to him, there would be trouble. You may be ignorant, but you were warned. 
And he explains that because you, you did this in ignorance, you're still guilty, you're still culpable. You're still to be held responsible. This is a silly story, but it reminds me of back when I was in college. I would often visit Sarah on the weekends. And on one occasion, I left her house to go back to school. It was pretty late in the evening. And about 10 minutes down the road, I realized that I left my dorm room key at her house. And so I had to turn around. So I turn around, I make my way back to her house, and uh, sure enough, the famous red and blue lights are flashing in my rearview mirror. And I'm just scratching my head because I have no idea why I am getting pulled over. And of course, the cop comes up, I roll down the window, and the first thing he says to me is, you know why I pulled you over, son? And I have no clue. I'm thinking to myself, I wasn't speeding. I've got my headlights on, I put the turn signal on, And then he explained to me that the street that I turned around on had a no turn on red sign. And I had just turned right uh, on a red light. And I I remember being so frustrated by this because this is not something that I would deliberately break the law on. If I saw the sign, I would happily wait for the green light. I was frustrated because I just merely didn't know. And if I did know, I would have done something about it. And so I, I, I tried to explain to the cop that I didn't know, that I'd never saw the sign. And then I tried to sell him some sob story about being a poor, broke college student. And then he wrote me a ticket. <laughs> because whether I knew it or not, I broke the law. And I was culpable for it. I needed to pay the debt that I had owed for breaking the law, whether I knew it or not. In God's court... You are guilty because you reject his son, Jesus, whether you realize it or not. Perhaps you came here today in ignorance. Perhaps you never have given a thought to the fact that you've rejected Jesus. But now as we work through this and talk with this together, you are no longer ignorant. And so to walk out these doors, not making the decision to follow Jesus, is no longer an act of ignorance, but straight up defiance to deny his name. We are a guilty people. But here is the wonderful truth that Peter shares, that there is still hope for forgiveness in our rejection of Jesus. There, are still, there is still time to make things right, but we have to take a critical step. Peter says it in verse 19. We need to use a hinge that takes a closed door and makes it an open door. I call it the hinge of repentance. This is what Peter calls us to do is to repent. And he kind of defines it in verse 19 when he says that that we are to turn back. Repentance merely means to switch directions, to change our minds. In the context of this passage today, it would change how we react. It would be changing how we react to Jesus. Instead of rejecting him or denying him, I've decided that I'm actually going to glorify him and accept him and submit to him. It's that simple. Repentance is understanding that my position before God and before Jesus is naturally one of rejection that I reject Jesus in my sin as God, and now I'm going to change that. This is why conviction is so important, because we cannot be led to a place of repentance 
until we have felt the weight of our rejection towards Jesus. One author writes that repentance is the fruit of a spirit-broken heart. This is why Peter uses such harsh language to his listeners, because they're ignorant and they have to know what they've done. They need to wake up and see how serious their condition of rejection really is. But here's the glory and the truth of this word in, in the gospel. By repenting, through repentance, we come to realize that it's not a person's moral perfection that qualifies him for salvation. It's not about being good enough. It's actually quite the opposite. Salvation comes when I recognize that I'm not perfect, that I can't do it, that I'm not righteous, but boy, do I have a hunger for Jesus's righteousness. And so I repent. I turn to him and I follow him and I resolve that I'm no longer going to do it my way, which is wicked and rebellious, but I'm going to do it Jesus's way. And then from this, Peter explains that we reap the benefits and the blessing that come with being in Christ who was resurrected from the dead. Peter mentions three of those benefits or, or blessings. Basically, he looks to the future. He says, if you repent, these three things are going to happen. When you turn to Jesus and accept him instead of denying him, this is what's going to happen. First, verse 19 says that your sins will be blotted out. This means to wipe away, to erase, to leave no trace. In, in the time that this was written, most writing was done on papyrus. And the ink didn't have any acid in it so the, the ink wouldn't soak into the paper like it does now. It would just kind of sit on top of the surface. And so to erase the writing, all you had to do was take a little wet cloth or a little wet sponge and just wipe over it and you could get rid of all of the ink without leaving a trace. So for Peter to say that your sins will be blotted out when you repent, it's saying that God will erase your sins. All of your record of wrong, God will just get rid of. He will erase it. There will be no more record. If you were to borrow money from me on several of occasions and did not pay me back, I would start recording it on a piece of paper. Right, I would keep a running tally of how much you owed me. I would keep a record of your debt to me. I would write down the date. I would write down the amount. And then I would keep a running total. And every once in a while, I would, I would remind you, hey, by the way, this is how much you owe me. I, I, would, I would lord it over you because I'm that kind of guy, right? In our rejection of Jesus... We have accumulated an insurmountable debt that we cannot pay off. It's impossible. And so what Peter says is if you repent, God takes all of your records of wrong, not just today, but all of your record of wrong from the past and all of the record of wrong that you're going to commit in the future, all the ways that you are indebted to him. And he, he says, God's just going to take a wet sponge. He's going to blot it away. He's going to wipe it out, wipe it clean, clean slate. When we repent, when we turn to Jesus, there is no longer any record of your debt because Jesus paid it all. 
When God looks for your record of wrong, he actually doesn't see your record. He sees Jesus's. That's the first blessing of repentance that Peter mentions. The second is that when we repent, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. This is verse 20. There are certain people in my life that are, that are what I would call life draining. You walk into a room and you just sink. And you're thinking, oh man, I, don't, I can't deal with this person right now, right? However, there are other people that are life-giving, that are refreshing. These are the type of people that when I'm going through a rough day or having a rough patch, these are the type of people that, that I want to be around. Just their being in their very midst lifts my spirits. They don't even need to say a word, but just to be in their midst is life-giving. Peter tells us that the very presence of the Lord is refreshing. He doesn't even need to say anything or do anything. Just his presence lifts our spirits. Repentance makes his presence possible. Repentance allows us to be in his presence. You can't be in the Lord's presence and be refreshed by him if you are actively rejecting him. And so repentance is the hinge that our relationship with the Lord is dependent on. If we reject and deny Christ, our access to his presence is blocked. It's a closed door. But in our submission to Jesus, the door swings wide open on the hinge of repentance and we now have access to his presence. We have a restored relationship with him. That's number two. And number three, not only will our relationship with him be restored, But we're told in verse 21 that all things will be restored. When we repent, we will be participants and recipients in the restoration of all things. To to restore something is to make it like new again. If your job or your hobby is to refurbish furniture, you are taking something that's old and broken and falling apart and you are making it like new. You are creating it like something in the furniture store that I could go to and buy like new. God is going to take the old and the broken world that has been crushed by the weight of sin and he's not going to make it just like new. He is going to make it new. He is going to restore it to its original, perfect, and pristine design. In the beginning, in God's original creation, there was no sin that needed to be blot out. There was no absence of God's presence and there was no decay. And there will come a day where God will restore all things back to what it was like in the beginning, in the garden. And so with this and with these truths, I want to connect our passage from last week with this week because the story of the lame man being healed really can't be separated from Peter's speech, from his sermon. Originally, I wanted to preach these two passages together and time got away from us, but you, you really should not disassociate these two passages 
I mentioned earlier that the miracle is a springboard into Peter's sermon. But when Peter says that God is going to restore all things, we come to find that the healing is not just a springboard. It's not only a device that Peter uses to earn the right to speak, but it's actually an object lesson in his teaching. It demonstrates that God has the power to restore through the work of Jesus and that he will restore all things when Jesus comes back. Peter healing the lame man points to and represents a greater restoration. This healing in chapter 3 was in a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific purpose, in order to illustrate God's restorative powers and God's restorative promises. This is what all healings are for. Whether there is healing through miraculous means or natural, healing always points to the ultimate healing, the ultimate restoration in the final age. When you recover from any kind of sickness or illness, we can praise God that there will come a day when all things will be restored, right? And so don't make the error in reading this and thinking that God is somehow obligated to heal you because he did it in this instance. God may not heal you like he heals this lame man, but the foundational truth that Peter and John point to is not in the healing in and of itself, but in the restoring power of the gospel. You see, Peter's not pointing back to an individual occurrence, but rather he's pointing to the grand story, the grand finale, the last page in the book. We have a lot of sick and broken people here at FAC. I know because you guys turn in your prayer requests to us. And I want you to know that if you turn in a prayer request, we as a leadership team pray for every single one of those prayer requests. We pray for you. We pray with you. We mourn with you. I want you to know that that we care and we love you and we mourn for you. But let me encourage you to not let your primary hope be in healing for today, but rather healing in eternity. Because I can't guarantee that you'll be healed today. But on the authority of God's word and on the authority of God's promises, if you have repented and accepted Jesus instead of denying him, you will be healed. You will be restored when that day comes. This man's healing is but a foreshadow of what's to come. It's an appetizer to give you just the tantalizing taste of what the main course is going to be. Which is why in our ministry, we must always follow up the love of God with the message of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the main course. When we care for the needy, when we provide for the poor, those are good things, and I'm glad that we do those, but we are merely fixing something temporarily. We are patching things up. 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the finished work of Jesus. See, Jesus not only wants to meet your temporary physical needs, but more importantly, he wants to fix your, uh, meet your eternal spiritual needs. And these eternal spiritual needs will not be met until you repent and turn to him. If you don't, verse 23 warns that every soul who continues to deny, who does not repent, will not be restored, but rather destroyed. You see, God receives you. He forgives you. He restores you. But he is also one that will let you live in your rejection of him. He is one that will look at you and, you, and say, you want it your way? Fine. Have at it and see what happens. And so I am left with the choice. Do I want to live my life proudly, my way, enjoy life as I see fit right now, only to be cut off in the end? Or am I willing to humbly submit myself before Jesus, live in faith and obedience to him, and receive these ultimate blessings, not just in this life, but in the life to come? Let's pray. Father, how convicting is this passage, Lord, and how hard this is to to just wrestle with the ways that I've rejected Jesus in my life. And so I thank you, Lord, for your grace, grace that I didn't deserve because I was guilty and I owed you something. I couldn't pay it back. And so as Jesus hung on that cross, he paid it for me. I ask, Lord, that even in this room, in this moment, that there would be people that come to a saving faith, a saving knowledge, and that maybe for the first time, uh, their, their entire life, perhaps they've rejected Jesus and denied him. But I pray that in this moment, they would, they would pray to him and pray to you as Father, Lord, and say, Jesus, I accept you, and I'm willing to submit to your way for my life. Lord, let this be what we are all about here at FAC as we seek to be a missional church to make Jesus known, Lord. So we pray for the resources that we are about to collect, the offering, Father. Would you bless it? Would you bless it in a way, multiply it in a way, and we would use it in a way that's honoring to you, Father? And I pray that people would come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, through these funds that are collected, Lord. I thank you for our givers, uh, the, the, the people that have a generous and joyful heart when they give. Would you bless them, Lord? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.